Hello and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. And today we are joined by Roy Bahat, head of Bloomberg Beta, investment firm and faculty at UC Berkeley in the Haas Business School. Welcome, Roy. Thank you. So why don't you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the basic income? Sure. I was a graduate student in economics a long time ago, and that's when I started hearing about the idea of a basic income. And I kind of filed it under you know, simple and beautiful but nuts ideas that economists think. Um, I love the fact that libertarian economists with whom I often disagreed were the leading advocates because I just love those kind of crossover hits because they show that there's something special going on. And then I became interested again in the last few years because our venture fund, which invests exclusively in very early startups that help make work better, we invest exclusively in the future of work, we just started seeing how the structure of many companies and markets didn't allow a typical person to do well enough to live an ordinary life. And basic income is a simple way of addressing that. Simple to describe, obviously not simple to bring to life. So you wrote a piece in the Washington Post uh, a year, year and a half ago now, talking specifically about how basic income could be helpful to creators. Can you say a little bit more about what you meant by that? My basic argument is that if a basic income existed, then people who want to make things and are constrained by the need to earn a living would be more free to make the things they want to make. That could be economically productive things. They could be works of culture for which they earn no money. The argument has been caricatured as, you know, VC thinks basic income will make people start more startups. The sense in which that's true is that, in effect, what I do for a living is give an entrepreneur or entrepreneurs a basic income to start their company. But it's false in the sense that I don't think that kind of startup is really what people at large are looking to do. I think many people just like to make things and they are personally rewarded or their communities are rewarded by it. And to the extent there's a fear about a basic income that it will reduce the incentive to work, I'm just as focused on the opportunity to reduce the fear that people have of not being able to subsist while they pursue things they care about. And would you say that the freedom to to create, to to make stuff, is sort of a, a perk of the basic income or like more a core piece of a you know the future economy? I think it's probably a core piece of the future economy. First of all, I think it's a core piece of today's economy. Sure. Because if you said to me, so we obsess over the future of work, you know, together with New America, we have formed this commission called the Shift Commission to study 10 to 20 year scenarios for the future of work in the United States. And I'm the co-chair of that with Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's a brilliant thinker on many issues, including the relationship between work and family life. My observation is almost anything that I was worried about for the future I should be instead thinking about it in the present because enough of that thing exists now. And I think today there are many people who would like to create for whom that's an essential part of their identity and they can't. And that's a shame. That's like a tragedy for lost invention. And I mean, when I say create, I mean everything from somebody who would like to sing songs every night to their family to somebody who wants to write the next great American novel to somebody who wants to build the next Facebook and everything in between. So it's core, to answer your question, and it's core today. So you mentioned this project you're doing with New America. Can you tell us, as you've been talking to people there, as you've been seeing how people react to these new and 
more future thinking ideas. What has, has that, have there been things that have surprised you? Is it people reacting the way you think? Are they coming at it from different perspectives than you might have expected? It's a great question. Many surprises. I had been stuck in a lot of conversations about the future of work in this dilemma of people saying, this time is different, AI will change everything. And I live in the technology industry, so of course I hear that a lot. And people saying, oh, you techno-revolutionaries always say that, and it never happens. And a very good recent book, by the way, Phil Auerswald, who's a professor at George Mason, wrote a book called The Code Economy that puts that argument in a 40,000-year historical frame. And the more I think about it, that argument is a red herring because almost all of the debates over the future of work can, as I said earlier, devolve to the present, or they really devolve to what is your view of human nature? You know, if you, what do you think people fundamentally want? Well, how do you think they will respond when um, presented with different conditions? And so what you really get at is different people from different walks of life having different views of human nature. So I'll give you one example of one that surprised me, which is that there were many people in the commission who felt that the decline in the participation in the workforce of men, particularly of younger men, was a bad thing. And I'm not going to say I think it's a good thing. But the specific aspect of it that they really glommed onto was, and then they sit at home and play video games. <laughs> and sort of lumping video games in with opioids <laughs> as bad things that people do when they're bored. And my view on it is their choice is between a crappy job and sitting at home and doing something that is at a minimum escapist and entertaining. And I used to work in the video games business, so I could say many times thrilling, social, profound, and I am less judgmental about people making that choice. I think it is an indictment of how we think about work and the work opportunities that are available. But I was just surprised about all the negativity about video games. I mean, to me, in some level in my head, it sounds like, you know, all this like, what are you kids in your rock and roll uh, <laughs> kind of thing, where we'll be embarrassed that we ran away from it. So that's one surprise. I would say that the other surprise for me was the difficulty, and I'll include myself in this for everybody, of just imagining possible futures. It is so hard to do anything but extrapolate from the status quo. I've now spent five full-day meetings across the country with multidisciplinary groups, and the number of truly imaginative moments are few and far between. I'm really curious, in those rare moments where people were able to think farther ahead, were there any takeaways that you had as to what prompted that? Ideas on how we can get people to actually adopt that more forward-thinking perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually just think it's a skill that can be practiced. So the people who consistently were better at it tended to be journalists. We had some creators of culture, writers, game developers, and so for a living, those folks imagine. And so they tended to be better at it. And I think that being it, it is important for us as we look at UBI, which, to be clear, I'm not yet an advocate saying we must implement a UBI. Is a multi-trillion dollar policy. I am enthralled by the possibilities of it and deeply believe in devoting real resources to understanding it. And I struggle to think of a better alternative to it. In order to get there, we either need leadership that just asserts that it'll be a better world and forces us to do it, and then we'll see, and or we need many people in the society to help us imagine what the future might look like or even what aspects of the present might look like. And I think about books like The Jungle as works of fiction 
that captured a real truth about a moment of what work was like that enabled the society as a whole to act on it. And stories are much more important to me than statistics. So we should do the research, but if we believe stories are more important than statistics, we should be just as focused on the storytelling, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so exciting that you have been doing this podcast and all the organizing work that you've been doing. So I want, I want to bring in the um, I don't know, metaphor, the parable of like how um, a fish doesn't know what water is yeah. because it's it's in water constantly. Why would it ever notice the water? Sure. Do you think we're kind of in a similar thing 100%. with uh, yeah employment, basically? Yeah. I mean, when you tell people that the weekend was a reasonably recent invention, <laughs> you know, they they show a glimmer of recognition because I think we're all supposed to know that. Yet it's very difficult for us to imagine, wait, what happened before there was a weekend exactly? <laughs> and the particular thing that's interesting to me about that, so there's the fish story, which I think is totally true. The more interesting thing to me is imagine if you were a fish who your grandparent fish didn't live in water. They lived in sludge or something <laughs> like that. They didn't know sludge. You didn't know sludge. You live in water. And so appreciating the differences in those conditions across time is so difficult to do because the people writing about those moments in those past moments, sharing, writing, capturing video... They thought that aspect of what they were living was so unremarkable that they didn't talk about it. And so one of the things I think we can do is just talk more and catalog more of these seemingly obvious aspects of our work experiences. So over the last year and a half, since the conversation around basic income, particularly in the United States, has really picked up, has your perspective on it shifted? Are there ways you perceive it now that are significantly different? Yes, I thought that basic income was a response to automation and the risk of automation job loss. And I now feel like the argument for basic income can either be made in the status quo or can't be made at all. So I'm much less focused on the relationship between predictions of future job loss and the existence of a basic income. Second, I've become aware of so many non-economic aspects of what a basic income could do. So we've mentioned the creativity part. The other one that stuck in my mind was an event I was at. A woman described an upper middle class person whose spouse is abusive and who has no way to exit. Even though their household, by every official definition, is rich, the simple absence of personally owned resources can be oppressive. And so that broadened my mind on it. I became much more respectful of the difficulty of the political coalition. For example, I had thought that technology people would be on the vanguard of this, and I think there are a couple who are, and I admire the fact that they are doing that. For the most part, I think tech is likely to be a bit player in the progress toward something, some way of raising the floor. The last thing is, and I think it's just going to be a much broader coalition, the last thing that I think is I failed to appreciate how different it would be to raise the floor in the many variations that there are that get lumped into a quote-unquote UBI. You know, we did this study to examine the feasibility of doing a ballot initiative in San Francisco that you know about. And there, what we saw is just names matter a lot. Okay, so, you know, anybody who's read a marketing textbook can figure that part out. But even things like, should it be quarterly or monthly or daily? Should it be in the form of cash or a tax credit? Should it be conditional on something? Should it be conditional? I've raised the question, should it be conditional on a mandatory one-year national service program? Should it be conditional on voting? You know, there are all these nuances that really affect the personal transaction you feel you have with the government. And I had lumped all those into one UBI mass. And really, they're so different from each other that each one is worth studying kind of on its own. And are there 
specific nuggets uh, from that study or just from other research that you can recall that you can take away? Yeah, there's one insight. So we did, uh, as part of the Shift Commission, focus groups with two communities, um, with truck drivers about the self-driving truck and with people who care as in addition to their daily work, they care for an elderly family member, just to try to get a sense of what are a couple communities who don't like go to conferences and talk about stuff with you know pinheads like me. What kinds of things do they think about? And we raised UBI roughly in passing. The reaction was strongly negative. Focus groups don't really teach you anything conclusively, but they give you hypotheses. And my hypothesis is that in the American psyche, the fundamental concept of how the society or is organized is exchange. I mean, we even call it a social contract, which is a matter of exchange. And it is tricky to fit UBI to that frame because UBI feels like I got something for nothing. And I think if people believe they got something for nothing, it will violate their sense of purpose and right. It could be that what UBI is is your reward for helping, having helped to build a society, your dividend. You know, some people use that word, Peter Barnes and others. It could be that it's conditional on something that is a basic expectation of every citizen, like, I don't know, voting. And fitting a raised floor into the frame of a contract or exchange or doing a lot more cultural work and throwing out that frame feels to me like an important finding. And I want to just jump back quickly to your point about how automation is what first kind of sparked this for you, but you, you found it goes way beyond that. And I agree that it goes far beyond automation. I'm just wondering if we can make an urgent case for a basic income without something kind of pushing it along like automation? It's a great question. So I think the answer is I don't know. <laughs> I think the case for something to raise the floor is strong today. I will give you my one sentence version of the case, which is the typical person born in America who plays society's game by the rules has too low a chance of providing an ordinary life for them, him or herself and their family. That's a crisis. That's why, in my opinion, that's the simplest reason why we have all these issues that we have. And so raising the floor can be part, not a sufficient part, because you still need purpose and all kinds of other things that have traditionally come bundled with a job, but that can be part of it. At the same time, I think we will probably need more crises to induce change. And my feeling about automation's future, which I've studied a lot, is most of the discussion happens with respect is a lazy discussion because people take, they'll make pronouncements like, 40% of all jobs will be automated. And what they, the reason it's lazy is because it doesn't have timing associated with it in terms of how far out will that happen. It doesn't have speed associated with it, which is to say when it starts to happen, how quickly will it happen? And it's aggregate numbers. And crises are caused, you don't pop a balloon by squeezing it everywhere. You pop a balloon with a pin. And so all we need, you know, people with self-driving truck, is that going to, yeah, that could be an issue, but so could the self-auditing accountant, the self-lending mortgage officer, the self-cashing-in-things cashier, the self-investing venture capitalist. I mean, any one of these things, particularly if they strike populations that are already primed to organize, whoever those populations may be, I think could be enough of a crisis to drive material change. And I say this you know, in the light of our presidential inauguration, the most optimistic note I can strike is if you'd asked me six months ago, the possibility of profound national change, I would have said, I meaning policy change, any kind of profound national level change. I would have said, ah, 
I don't know. We're one of those systems that basically has been working for a while and may find itself vulnerable to disruption because we can't move very much. Now, for better or for worse, I'll say radical change is possible. And arguably the crisis is already here. If radical change is possible, then all of a sudden the wagon has jumped out of the ruts and it may be veering in a direction that a lot of people don't like. Yeah. But getting it out of the rut was the hard part. <laughs> veering it to you know another direction once it's out is, I believe, more achievable by comparison. So what do you hope will happen with basic income over, say, the next two years or so? Great question. I hope that we will continue to learn from these experiments that are beginning so we'll get data. And I hope that we will capture stories about how people talk about basic income. And I hope that we will provoke cultural imagination by people who are extremely talented at that to help us to see these things in a new way. And that's what I plan to work on is sort of shedding light through understanding of regular people, shedding light through storytelling on the level of things that could be hits, let's just call it, and shedding light through data. That was Roy Bahat on the Basic Income Podcast. Roy is the head of Bloomberg Beta and faculty at UC Berkeley. You can follow him on Twitter. He's just Roy Bahat, R-O-Y-B-A-H-A-T. To hear more episodes like this, please subscribe. And while you're over at iTunes, please leave a rating or review. It helps other people find the podcast. Thanks again to our producer, Eric Davidson. See you next week.